Part 6, The Economic, Social, and Cultural Differences of the North and South. Slaves were a massive part of the Southern economy. In fact, in the 11 Confederate states, slaves represented 38% of the population, making up 23% of whites' income. As James L. Huston notes in the Journal of Southern History, quote, Southerners were not going to allow any attack upon the property rights that gave them wealth and income. Northerners could not allow Southerners to win the battle over property rights because it would cause a fundamental recasting of Northern society. When something makes up nearly a quarter of your income, it is not just pocket change, it is your lifestyle, it's your culture, it's the fabric of your society. Gerald Gunderson points out in the Journal of Economic History that the Civil War didn't make much economic sense. For example, the Civil War cost about $3.7 billion. The cost of compensated emancipation or buying all of the slaves' freedom would have been about $2.5 billion. As he points out, quote, both Northerners and Southerners believed that their societies were endangered, and those perceptions reached paranoid proportions by the 1850s. The existence of two systems of property, both of which produced income from massive amounts of investment, and one of which intruded with damaging effects upon the other, is sufficient to generate massive conflict. One additional aspect of human behavior, however, must be invoked in order to obtain the final result, civil war. In order to preserve accumulated property or even to extend the bounds of property ownership, some people will kill other people. Becoming an endangered society is surely a motivating factor that would encourage people to kill their neighbors. But before they began killing each other, they began hating each other, calling each other disparaging names. Take, for example, the aftermath of the Dred Scott decision. It ruled that either free or enslaved African Americans were not U.S. citizens. Republicans were miffed. The majority opinion was decided by seven Democrat justices. The only dissenting justices were the other two Republicans on the court. As a result, Northerners began saying that the court was dominated by Southern fire eaters. Things went beyond political cartoons and prodding. During the 1850s, Northerners and Southerners began clashing over slavery out west. Northerners who headed to Kansas and wanted to prevent slavery from expanding were called free staters. Meanwhile, pro-slavery raiders who went into Kansas were referred to as border ruffians. This us-versus-them mentality was pervasive. This continued even after the Civil War. During the Reconstruction era, they called each other carpetbaggers and scalawags. Now let's jump forward to today. We have pro-masker and anti-vaxxer, pro-vaxxers and anti-vaxxers. We have those who follow the science and those who are science deniers. But this name-calling as a defense started a bit before the pandemic-era craziness. The right called the left libtards and snowflakes. The left called the right teabaggers and deplorables. The pandemic only brought this hatred out even more, because now we were talking about issues that affect your everyday life. You might say, but hey, what about abortion? We call each other pro-life or pro-choice, and no civil war ever happened after Roe v. Wade. True, but that largely fell along religious and philosophical lines. Abortion rights only affect you if you need an abortion. However, everyone needs a job, and mask and vaccine mandates complicate matters. 
It can be the difference between being employed or being unemployed. It affects your bottom dollar and involves forcing one to do something they may not want to do or may have a different opinion on. And let's face it, abortion affects women's lives way more than men's. A man may be for or against abortion, but they will never need the procedure. But mask and vaccine mandates affect men, not just women. And let's go back to the words. Pro-life and pro-choice aren't necessarily demeaning. It identifies which side of the aisle or side of that issue you're on. But in and of itself, being called pro-life isn't as insulting as being called a libtard or a deplorable. It just is what it is. The disdain that existed for each other was so strong for each leading up to the Civil War that it only took a couple of words to describe, like a fire eater. There was no nuance. Today we find ourselves in the same situation. But let's add another layer on top of this division. If you think having friends and family with different opinions on wearing masks is tricky, try having one that owns a slave or is fighting for the right to own one. During the Civil War, it pitted families against each other. They weren't just on opposite sides of the aisle. They were on opposite sides of the firing line. Even Abraham Lincoln had family members who fought in the Confederate Army. As the book The Divided Family in Civil War America said, quote, The idea that two brothers or a father and son or a husband and wife could assume opposing stances in the war has both captivated and perplexed scholars, writers of fiction, and filmmakers since the first shots were fired over Fort Sumner. The families that are most likely to be caught in the Great Division lived in the border states of Missouri, Kentucky, Tennessee, Virginia, Maryland, Delaware, and Washington, D.C., the book references an 1861 letter in which a woman writes, quote, There is scarcely a family that is not divided. Another reference comes from a newspaper of the day that said, quote, Succession has broken up the dear social relations in every community of the border slave states, turning son against father, brother against brother, daughter against mother, friend against friend. But one of the most jarring examples from the book comes from October 1862 in Perryville, Kentucky. Just 20 feet away from each other, one man shot and killed another soldier. This enemy soldier was his brother. The Louisville Daily Journal reported that he told his brother that, quote, he had done it on purpose. He gave him water and a blanket and then left. He eventually came back and stayed with his dying brother for part of the night. The newspaper then went on to explain away what happened, saying that Hopkins was, quote, a man of family. The book, The Divided Family in Civil War America, sums up this paradox, saying, quote, The public rules of combat force these two men to suppress their kinship ties and become enemies. Now, fast forward to today. The division runs through more than just borderlines. It runs through the family line. Of course, no one is shooting their brother over mandates yet, but we are finding families fraught with vaccine and mask disagreements. Think of all the families who require proof of vaccine or COVID testing to come to holiday gatherings. Brides are even asking for proof of vaccination for their weddings. It's become vitriol on both sides. Pointing your finger at your family and friends, calling them a name, and then running off to get away isn't mature. It's only making things more tense. Sure, people argued at Thanksgiving with their goofy relatives about politics, but at least they all felt like they could still be in the same room. Now people won't even associate with them. Watch the news or go online. There are countless articles written on how to talk to those that are vaccine hesitant. Really? We're so far apart, we need mainstream news to tell us how to converse with our own family? No one has picked up a rifle against a family member, but they have locked the door against them. The mass ignorance to get along, despite our differences, has forced this country into isolation. Part 7. Lincoln was a tyrant, but we still have some today. 
Lincoln is portrayed as a hero. He won the Civil War and ended slavery, a tremendous feat based in equality for all. But he was also a tyrant. Yes, that may not be politically correct to say, but he was. He was ruthless against Southerners. And remember, these aren't foreign enemies. These were our own citizens, our fellow countrymen. On April 24, 1863, President Lincoln issued the General Order, which was also known as the Lieber Code. At that time, Union generals were facing questions on the rules of war that they couldn't resolve. Thus, the Lieber Code was drafted. It contained 157 provisions, outlining rules and general principles of what soldiers could and couldn't do. Prior to this, we had the codes of Gradius and Divatel. But these old ones forbid assaults on armies upon non-combatants. The Lieber Code was sought to change this and allowed the army to do almost anything it wanted under the provision that it was military necessity. And this necessity always superseded legality and humanity. Article 17 okayed starving people. It said, quote, War is not carried on by arms alone. It is lawful to starve the hostile belligerent armed or unarmed so that it leads to the speedier subjection of the enemy. Union General William Sherman carried out crushing defeats against the South. However, he was greatly troubled by the actions that he saw, saying, quote, The amount of burning, stealing, and plundering done by our army makes me ashamed of it. I would rather quit the service if I could, because I fear that we are drifting to the worst sort of vandalism. You and I and every commander must go through the war, justly charged with crimes at which we blush. When a Southerner called Sherman out and labeled him a barbarian for leading his army to do such things, Sherman replied by saying, May take your house, your fields, your everything, and turn you out helpless to starve. It may be wrong, but that don't alter the case. Union soldier Joshua Chamberlain also criticized the violent means at which the Union was resorting to, saying, quote, I'm willing to fight men in arms, but not babes in arms. Union General Don Carlos Buell resigned in protest of what he saw, saying, quote, I believe that the policy and means with which the war was being prosecuted were discreditable to the nation and a stain on civilization. Not only was there plundering and vandalism and burning and starving, but women were raped, imprisoned, mistreated, and then sent north without any assistance. America committed gross atrocities during the Civil War, all at the hands of a tyrant. Abraham Lincoln. Now fast forward to the pandemic era of America today. President Joe Biden levied a thinly veiled threat last year. Uncle Joe tweeted, quote, the rule is not simple. Get vaccinated or wear a mask until you do. The choice is yours. Now it didn't take long for Republican congressmen to clap back. Representative Paul Gosser wrote, quote, men must be governed by God or they will be ruled by tyrants. Normally, there's not much value in a tweet, but Gassar isn't too far off about tyrants. In President Biden's first day in office, he signed more executive orders than Trump, Obama, and Bush combined. So far, he has signed a total of 87. Through the stroke of his pen and federal agencies, he has issued sweeping vaccine mandates for truckers, healthcare workers, and federal employees, not to mention private businesses. Some have been curtailed by the Supreme Court. Others have not. Nevertheless, we're setting a dangerous stage in the White House, one that makes the president more like a king, issuing and ordering decrees at his whim. It's what he wants when he wants it, and Biden isn't the only one to blame. During Trump's tenure, he issued more than 200 executive orders. Obama issued more than 275. Bush had nearly 300, and Clinton just over 250. 
Something is happening in this country where as long as your guy's in office, we don't really care if tyranny is creeping in. It's almost like we yearn for a benevolent master. Obama, Trump, and Biden all complained about excessive executive orders, yet they did the opposite when they got in office. Biden even went so far as to say there are things, quote, you can't do by executive order unless you're a dictator. We're a democracy. We need a consensus. And Biden was right. Yet here we are 87 executive orders later. They likely didn't matter much before. Perhaps you never paid attention to the number of executive orders or their content. Let's face it, who wants to read legal documents and policy directives? But administration after administration did it, and now we're left in a situation where a president thinks he can executive order his way into the arms of every American. Remember last fall when he said, quote, we've been patient, but our patience is wearing thin? Interesting choice of words. Seems like you're only worthy of patience if you eventually comply with him. During the election, he said he would not mandate vaccines, but seems like he didn't really mean that. This isn't commentary on whether you should get the vaccine. It's your body and your choice. You know what is best for you. What I am saying is that forcing people to do something that is so invasive as injecting someone is startling. What if he got up there and forced Americans to pray, forced them to take communion, or forced them to go to church? We would all scream about the constitutional injustice. Same here. We have religious liberty, and overriding this because you really want to in one area is dangerous. We also have a right to privacy. These mandates are a slippery slope to tyranny. And when tyrants rise, people rise up too. We're merely ricocheting tyranny from one administration to the other. If we get a president of a different party in 2024, we're likely to see an extreme swing in the other direction, and that's not good. The more used we get to having a tyrant, the more likely we are to not only have a civil war, but also unleash senseless brutality against our fellow man, just like Lincoln. Extreme leaders will only more clearly define the contours of the division that exists within our country. Maybe you think this pandemic is serious enough to make an exception for vaccines. Okay, but who decides what is serious enough? What happens if Republicans take back Congress this fall? What if they win the White House in 2024? What type of mandates will they issue with the precedent that exceptions are okay if they are important or serious enough? Just think of what would happen if someone like Ted Cruz became president. It makes us all want to pull our hair out. Can you imagine the tyranny that someone like him would bring to this country? Having a government or a president that thinks they know best on all things and decide everything about your life is the exact opposite of what this country represents. This type of oppressing government rule won't keep you safe. It is the definition of tyranny. We shouldn't want our predilections or lifestyle forced on anyone because eventually our guy will be gone and our enemy will take his place. And no one wants their enemy controlling their life. My conclusion for the deep cut on are we about to enter a civil war? Well, the inability to believe in the same principles is what sent the Union into disarray 160 years ago. Today it's not North versus South, it's Left versus Right. When reflecting on the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln said, quote, Both parties deprecated war, but one of them would make war rather than let the nation survive, and the other would accept war rather than let it perish, and the war came. Try and tell me that doesn't sound like the times we are living in now. Two percent of the U.S. population was killed during the Civil War. One in five Southern white men of military age were killed. More people died in the Civil War than all wars combined up until the Vietnam War. 
We did this to our fellow countrymen with just muskets, cannons, and bayonets. Now we have much bigger and badder toys. We have drones. They can be weaponized. Flamethrowers, grenades, and guns. So many guns. In fact, there are more guns in this country than there are people. So one thing is for sure. When the next civil war happens, it's going to be a lot bloodier. <laughs>